right, we're in Job chapter 20 tonight, Job chapter 20, and I want to just, we're not going to make it all the way through. I have determined though, I'm going to stay on track, so if we don't make it all the way through, you have to just study the rest of it on yourselves, and we'll still go to the next chapter next time, so. Uh, But uh, Job chapter 20, looking at verse number 1, we are talking, we're at the second speech of Zophar, and this one, uh, this is going to be a real shock to you, but this one was harsh and cruel. (laughs) That's the common theme throughout this whole thing, isn't it? Uh, He pays no attention to Job who's begging for pity, we saw last week, and Zophar is playing the same tune that Eliphaz and Bildad have play, been playing, is all designed to make Job feel terrible and that to try to impress on him how much of a wicked sinner he is. And that's the wrong tune to play. By the way, even if somebody is a bad sinner, it's the wrong tune to play. You don't just beat up on somebody. You try to help them out of the situation they're in, give them some hope of forgiveness and, and uh, the Lord being able to change them. So, uh, this, this is just not the right way to go about it. But look, read with me, if you would, verse number 1. Then answered Zophar, the Naamite, and said, Therefore do my thoughts cause me to answer, and for this I make haste. I have heard thy, the check of my reproach, and the spirit of my understanding causeth me to answer. Knowest, not, knowest, now that, ugh, knowest thou not this of old, since man was placed upon earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment? Though his excellency mount up to the heavens, and his head reach into the clouds, yet shall he perish forever like his own dung. They which have seen him shall say, Where is he? Father, I pray you'd help us in the next few minutes here uh, to pull some things out of here that'll uh, give us some instruction as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So he introduces his speech by telling Job that, that Job's words compel him to answer. He says, Therefore do my thoughts cause me to answer. This statement looks like he was wise in thinking before he spoke. Uh, That's a good thing to do, thinking before we speak. Amen? We need to think before we talk. Uh, We ought to taste our words before we spit them out. It would be a good thing to do. A lot of people don't. A lot of people just uh, blab out what the first thing that comes into their mind. Uh, My... I don't know who first told me this. I'm sure you've heard it too, but to the acrostic, the acrostic for the word think, uh, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? And is it kind? Uh, those are good questions to ask before we speak. A, the, <laughs> the book of Job would be about three pages if they'd have asked that question <laughs> before they spoke, but uh, they did not. Too many talk before they think. And we ought to do that. True, helpful, inspiring, necessary, kind. We ought to ask those questions before we talk. But that necessary, by the way, is, is a good one. It was, um, I was reading some different quotes on, on, uh, speaking the truth as I was looking at this, but I think it was Voltaire. Hate to quote him, but, uh, this, uh, this is a good quote he made. The, uh, when you speak, always speak the truth, but do not always speak the truth. That makes sense. Sometimes we don't have to say what comes to our mind. You know, it may be true that someone's overweight. We don't need to tell them every time we see them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, don't. <laughs> that's I said that for you, Pastor. All right. So uh, when you when you speak, speak the truth. But you don't always have to speak the truth. There's times when we have to show some wisdom. So is it necessary? That's a good question for that. Wise people put their brain in gear. 
before they put their mouth in motion. Uh, foolish people put their mouth in motion and never put their brain in gear. They just blabber what they want to say. Uh, it is not just thinking, though, but it is correct thinking that we need but that should determine our talk. A great many people think they're thinking when they're just rearranging their prejudices. Let me say that again because that's what's happening, I believe, with Zophar here. He says, my thoughts cause me to answer. He thought he was, he thinked he was thinking, <laughs> but he was rearranging his prejudices. You can see it in some people's faces while you're saying something and they're, they're just itching to say back something. They're, they're, uh, they, they might act like they're thinking, but they're not. They're just uh, coming up with the next response. All right. This was Zophar's problem. Uh, his thoughts were not good thoughts, and it made his words only more toxic uh, when he started talking. And then the passion in his speech, verse 2, for this I make haste. So you'd think the first part of the verse kind of sounds like he's thinking before he's speaking, but then he races that because he says, for this I make haste. He did not deliberate long enough. He was anxious and in a hurry to speak to Job. His urge to speak in a hurry was caused by what Job had spoken against him. We'll see that in just a minute. So Zophar was speaking more from passion than from pondering. I should say, he was pontificating more from passion than from pondering. Okay, Say that ten times. Uh, he was, uh, by the way, this is a tailor-made antithesis of James 1.19, where the Bible says, War for my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, Slow to speak, slow to wrath. Zophar spoke swiftly, and so doing displayed his wrath, which was a critical spirit. When we speak quickly, like he says here, I make haste, I gotta talk quick. Stop talking, like uh, Bildad always asks him, when are you gonna, how long are you gonna keep talking, Job? I got something to say. Well, Zophar is the same thing. I want you to stop talking. I have something to say, and I need to say it quick. So, uh, when we are quick to talk, now, am I? maybe I'm the only one whose mouth has ever gotten them in trouble. Anybody else here with me? Okay, I think we've probably all been there where our mouth gets us into trouble. And it always happens when I'm too quick to talk. If I stop and think about it, then uh, many times I save myself from embarrassment because I don't just uh, blather it out. I, I don't like to use crude language in church, but... Uh, I had a friend that always called it diarrhea of the mouth. Sometimes we get that. and It just spews out nasty languages and words and it's just a bad thing. That's what Zophar had. And he spoke swiftly and he had a critical spirit. So many people like Zophar, they cannot wait to speak even if they have nothing worthwhile to say. In fact, it is the person who has the least to say who is usually the most eager to speak. Uh, you've heard this, but I love this statement. I say it often uh, to myself. Better to be thought of as a fool than to open your mouth and to remove all doubt. Let people think you're a fool. Don't speak and prove it. Okay, that's what we often do. That's biblical, by the way. Proverbs 17, 28 says, Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. <laughs> so, say, but preacher, I am a fool. Then don't talk. And people will think you're wiser than you really are. All right, so this is Zophar's problem. Now, look at verse 3. His, his provo we, we saw then the, the pondering for his speech, the passion. Now look at the provocation for his speech. Uh, verse 3, I have heard the check of my reproach. Now, now we get to the real reason that Zophar unloads on Job. Uh, he tra the word translated check 
in the text here means correction and discipline. So Zophar is offended that Job corrected or uh, criticized or rebuked his last speech, and so he lashes out. Essentially what this is saying here, Job, how dare you criticize me while I'm criticizing you? That's what he's basically saying. Isn't that a great attitude for a friend? Uh, he had he could not take a rebuke at all. All they're doing is unloading rebukes on Job, but they can't take one because as soon as Job says anything about them being worthless comforters, then he says, I've heard thy check of my reproach. Now, it gets worse. Look at what he says the next year in verse 3. And the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. Gag me. Look at how full he is of himself. Zophar just loves to toot his own whistle here, doesn't he? The spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. He thinks he's got the whole situation so figured out that Job had better listen to him. By the way, he's not. this is not the first time he speaks about his own uh, wisdom. And uh, the only thing wrong with Zophar's statement here is that it's not true. It's He wasn't speaking from wisdom. He still does not understand what's going on. He is ignorant of the cause of Job's affliction. He's ignorant of the state of Job's heart. He doesn't know either one of those, and he's coming with a misunderstanding of both of those situations. But did he let that stop him from blabbering condemnation? Oh, no. Fools don't. You think lack of knowledge stops people from talking? Not at all. I mean, that... that uh, uh, dad, dad, sometimes dad was very, very careful never to criticize preachers. I was raised with preachers being my heroes, and I was I was the one that was standing in a long line to get my Bible signed. And I don't even have that Bible, and I don't know what happened to it. But I had pages of, of famous preachers' signatures in my Bible. They were my heroes. But uh, occasionally he would say something like, "I've never heard somebody uh, that's saying so little and doing taking so long to do it." Sometimes he would say something like that. But it wouldn't be directly critical. But here's that was Zophar. By the way, if Zophar had spoken in wisdom, he wouldn't have to tell Job. Typically, we recognize wisdom when we hear it. When you have to tell people repeatedly how smart you are, you're probably not that smart. Or in any other area of life either. Uh, because wise men speak and people often recognize it. Wise men speak because they have something to say. Fools speak because they have to say something. Let just, let's fall in the right category and know when to not speak. Again, I'll, I'll mention it again. We've mentioned before, but the wisest or best thing these three counselors did happened in the first seven days when they all sat there and said nothing. And they were just there for Job. Uh, when they started talking, that made uh, all the difference. But here, Zophar is just filled with his own uh, his own wisdom, and you can never tell by the toot of the horn by how much gas is in the tank. So when a lot of people try to do a lot of their own horn tooting, but that doesn't tell us what's really in their character. Now, we get to the indictment. The main part of Zophar's speech here is judgment on the wicked. It's mostly the same message they've all been repeating. I was talking to Brother Wes about this last week because this is what I'm struggling with in sermon prep going through the book of Job because each chapter is like a repeat from the last chapter. And which is a repeat from the chapter before. Job, you're rotten. No, I'm not. Job, you're rotten. No, I'm not. Job, you're rotten. No, I'm not. And then to try to pull different messages. So uh, hopefully we're getting something a little different in each chapter as we go through. But the custom in those days 
was to speak indirectly in serious matters. Uh, so the judgment on the wicked that the three friends, as you've been noticing, and we, of course, can take many truths from what they say because much of what they said is true of the wicked. They're just applying it to Job. But they haven't been very... In fact, never really do they say, Job, this happened to you because of what you did. They keep saying, this is what happens to the wicked. Hint, hint. That's how they're talking to Job here. And, and this is what they're going to do again here. Basically, if the shoe fits, wear it, Job. So you can tell that this is going on because they describe the condition of the wicked very closely to Job's condition. The loss of property, the loss of your children, uh, sickness on the, in the body. They constantly tie these, these con, uh, the, the, the consequences of wickedness uh, into exactly what Job's going through. So Job knew what they were doing. He did not deny he was a sinner ever, but he did deny repeatedly that he did not do some great wickedness to cause this trouble. And this aggravated them because that he would not repent after all their deep insight and wisdom that they're giving him. They felt insulted. So they become more harsh as the time goes on and more hostile. Now, it again, as we're going to go through this, it's not the message that's bad, but the application uh, that is bad. And so let's look at what he has to say. Uh, he starts with the duration of the wicked. Verse number 4. Knowest thou not this of old, since man was placed on the earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, that the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. He begins with what he says is an obvious principle because it is supported by antiquity. This is what they constantly apply through here because it's been like this since man was created. Knowest thou not? That's a little slap at Job for being ignorant. Uh, not that he was, but this is what they did. Zophar acts like Job is unaware, and in so doing, he belittles Job in order to exalt himself again. This is a classic action of an insecure, foolish person, which is what Zophar was here anyway. Uh, he talks about the triumphing of the wicked is short, which is true. The pleasures of sin are always short. And then he talks uh, about the demotion of the wicked, verse seven, no, 6, actually. Though his excellency mount up on the heavens, and his head reach unto the clouds, Yet shall he perish forever like his own dung. They which have seen him shall say, Where is he? Uh, Job was considered the greatest man in the East, chapter 1, verse 3. It, so it's obvious what Zophar is doing here. Even though Job's, uh, ro Job's head was above all men here, uh, his wickedness has now brought him down. Now, Job's, uh, Zophar's statement is good, but his application is bad. Though the wicked can become great, he will be demoted in due time. Sometimes uh, a wicked man will gain much power. We've seen that. We see it all around us all the time. Uh, really, the greatest, greatest, most famous, wealthiest people in our world, in our nation today, aren't necessarily the goodest people, the best people. They're often even wicked. So they will be demoted in due time. Uh, God has more power than all the wicked people in the world put together. Amen? He can make it come out right. And so he's perfectly capable of taking down the wicked. The psalmist said in Psalm 37, 35, I've seen the wicked in great power, spreading himself like a green bay tree, yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. The wicked then are demoted, who, who are demoted, are compared to dung. What it says in verse 17, uh, they'll perish forever, or seven, sorry, like his own dung. That's kind of crude. 
so strong language. So I went to the original, uh, see if there's a little more palatable. And it's uh, the original word means ball of dung. So it gets no better if you go to the original. Uh, this is how, uh, and it's a good comparison, by the way. Degrading uh, portrayal, isn't it? To say we're like the, our own dung. But evil sits on a throne for a while, and then eventually uh, it's gone, like the Bible says dung. Now, I'll give you some personal examples, a personal example. Uh, if you want to go have a quick little experiential science, science class. When I was growing up, we played a game sometimes, uh, cow patty frisbee. We were very delinquent in games when I was growing up. We didn't have video games or electricity. So we would once in a while, if we're out in the pasture, we would throw cow patty frisbee. Once they get really dry, I did that as a youth activity once. Horrified the parents, which is always a fun thing to do. Uh, but we had some dairy farmers. I went out and got a whole bunch of dried cow patties, and we played cow patty frisbee. The kids loved it. Parents hated it. Uh, that's always the mark of a good youth activity. Uh, but anyway, we, uh, you, you know, you don't, you don't pick up, I'm not trying to be gross, but you don't pick up a fresh one, okay? It's, it's after it's dried. And then what they do is they, they get very dry, they get, then they flake away, they become dust, they become nothing, and after a year or so, it's just gone. And that's what it uses here as a, as an example for us. That's the greatness of all of us. We may be great, may be famous, and you have power, but it's not eternal. And one day it'll all just flake away. So uh, let's remember that. And then number three, uh, he talks about the disappearance of the wicked. Verse number seven and eight. Um, he shall, uh, let's just look at the rest of uh, verse, last part of verse seven actually. They which have seen him shall say, where is he? He shall fly away as a dream and shall not be found. Yea, he shall be chased away as a vision of the night. Where is he? The psalmist repeats the same truth. Psalm 37, 36, he passeth away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. There have been many, many men in history that have been very famous, they're very powerful, and very wicked, and they've disappeared. Uh, there's some we know about, but I'm sure there's many more we do not. They're often left out of the history books. Wickedness does not have durability. It does not have longevity. You know, we have our Hitlers and Stalins, I mean, obviously on a grand scale. If you kill six million people, you'll probably be in the history books. But I'm talking about just our everyday run-of-the-mill wicked people that, that, uh, that, that doesn't have that kind of durability. Uh, we see the perplexity. Where is he? We see the pace. He shall fly away. The quickness that men disappear from the scene is amazing. My dad, as he gets older, he likes to have these conversations. It's a little morbid, but we have the, you know, we go back to two generations. My grandfather's name was Yura Yoder. My great-grandfather's name is Isaac Yoder. And Isaac Yoder was a big man in his, I mean, not big, obviously, stature-wise, but he was, was well-known, well-respected, successful, uh, would have had many friends, would have had uh, influence, and I mean, he's nothing anymore. He's a blip in a few of our memories. I don't remember him. I, my dad remembers him. But soon, you know, before too many years, my dad will pass off the scene and then there will be no memory of him anymore. Uh, it's, it, and that's not that long ago. You know, that's 
50 years ago. It's not 100, it's not 200, not 300. We pass off the scene very quickly. And we have to remember that. So many people, they enjoy political fame and then in defeat, they disappear quickly. You know, who ran for president against Mil Milton, uh, President Milton? You remember that one? I don't even hardly remember President Milton. We don't remember the, the ones who lose, do we? They go away. Uh, we know many great men in history. But there's usually not statues made for serial killers and for losers of political races and such things. They go away. I didn't try to put that in the, two different, in the same category there. I'm not saying that losers of political races and serial killers. You know what I'm saying. Uh, wickedness has a way of, of fading in the night. By the way, so do we. I mean, really, any, any humankind, we're going to fade away. It's, it helps us to remember that. And then the pushing. He shall be chased away as a vision of the night. Uh, some wicked men are forcibly pushed out of, their, out of the picture. When Stalin died, the communist rulers in Russia began a campaign to eliminate him, to push him from the history books, books and from a position of fame and respect. They wanted no cult of popularity for Stalin. His fame was chased away. That's exactly what the Bible says. And then the permanency, verse 9. The eye also which saw him shall see him no more, neither shall his place any more behold him. We talked about the de demotion of the wicked. The wicked, even though they're powerful and great, will eventually disappear and their disappearance will be permanent. You'll never see them again on the earth. They're gone. They're finished forever. You can do a lot of things to build a legacy. And maybe it'll last a few years beyond you, but uh, eventually it'll be gone. And then we see the descendants of the wicked. Verse 10 his children shall seek to please the poor, and his hands shall restore their goods. This is not speaking about having charitable kids. Uh, it speaks of the humbling situation that come on to children of the wicked. I'm going to read what Rawlinson said, because he says it so much better than I can. His children will curry favor with the poor, either by making restitution to them on account of their father's injuries, or simply because they are friendless and desire to ingratiate themselves with someone. That's the idea here. They got nobody else to go to but the poor, the outcasts. Don't envy the children of wicked people that have great fortunes handed to them. We see that sometimes. Uh, man, those are some bad kids sometimes. And as one of the respects, I, I don't, you know, I hope for his soul he's a Christian, is one of the, the big points of respect I had for Donald Trump. Very wealthy man, but his kids are, have turned out character type worldly speaking I'm not talking about you know they're not on the mission field or anything but they they are not they're not uh, tyrants is what I'm saying and so that's rare though typically the kids of billionaires can be quite, uh, quite a lot the debt of the wicked also in verse 10 his hand shall restore their goods if you skip down to verse 18 it says that which he labored for shall he restore and shall not swallow it down according to his substance shall the restitution be and he shall not rejoice therein he speaks here the restitution of the debt of the wicked. There's going to be a time of restitution for the wicked. He's going to have to pay back that debt incurred through evil. And verse, uh, he talks, it's done in humility. His hand shall restore the goods. The children are going to help restore the goods from whom they are wrongfully taken here. But the wicked, wealthy man also will have uh, in, in, in a humiliation of having to restore the goods. Uh, I've got to rush through here real quick. Uh, it talks about the decay of the wicked, verse number 11. 
His bones are full of the sin of his youth, which shall lie down with him in the dust. Zophar again gives some good truth about wickedness here, and it's simply this, that the sins of your youth can catch up to you. Even if they're forgiven, God's covered them, there are still consequences. You can repent of your sins and have salvation or get salvation, but evil committed before salvation still can wreck the body, ruin the body. I, uh, when I went to college, the church that I went to, when I went to college, this guy wasn't a part of college, but he went to our church and he played the piano. He um, had went off into wickedness and vile sin, uh, and he contracted AIDS, and he uh, that got his attention. He got right with God. I don't know if he was saved after that or just got right with God, but he came back. And he was serving the Lord, but I I knew him for a couple of years. He was still alive when I moved up to Michigan, but it didn't last long. But I just saw him waste away. It was not that's a, that was a horrible disease to have. And uh, he was he was a Christian. He was living right now, and he had renounced all his uh, wicked ways. But uh, his bones are full of the sin of his youth. The Bible tells us that's a warning to us all. Salvation will deliver you from eternity and hell. And God can forgive you for your sins, but it doesn't always save you from the havoc brought on your body by sin. By the way, he's using all this to point to Job. Look at your body, Job. And he's applying this to Job. Again, good truths, bad application. Uh, that digestion of the wicked, and we'll, we'll mention this and then I'll just close it out here. But uh, verse 12 and 13, though the wickedness be sweet in his mouth, though he hide it under his tongue, though he spare it and forsake it not, but keep it still within his mouth, uh, portraying the attraction of sin here. Sin can be very appealing, like a piece of candy in one's mouth. Tastes so sweet. Wickedness often tastes sweet to the evildoer, but it doesn't last. It's like bubblicious gum, pink stuff that comes in buckets. Worst stuff in all the world. How long is it good for? Like 10 seconds, and then it's nasty. The flavor just very short, very quick. That's sin. Tastes good for a minute, and then it's gone. Uh, I, I, when I was reading this, I was thinking of that. I think they still use it in youth game with, with the young people on a regular basis. But have you ever seen the bean boozled jelly beans? Uh, we, uh, you, you take first color guards, or color guides, pick up a, a, a red one, and it's either going to be cherry or uh, dog food, and then you'll have a green one will either be sour apple or vomit, and they get that flavor down really good. I've gotten a few of the bad ones. And so the, the kids, you know, they both take, and they have to see if it's good or bad. you got to pop it in and eat it, hoping it's good. And it's kind of how sin is. We expect it to be good, and uh, it can be very bad. So for anybody want to sign up for the next youth activity? I've talked about a few of them tonight, okay? okay. They do some crazy things, all right? Uh, 14 and 15. Yet his meat in his bowels is turned. It is the gall of asps within him. He hath swallowed down riches, and he shall vomit them up again. Boy, he gives a good description of the end results of sin. But what he's doing here, so far as as much as tells Job that he may, may have found his supposed wickedness sweet at one time, but look at you now, Job. Now that you've digested it, uh, it is, you've been brought down by this deadly situation. What a, what a nice friend this is, isn't it? Just a reminder again of making sure we are the right kind of friend to those that need it and we seek the right kind of friendship from those who give it. Amen. Uh, so we'll stop there for tonight. Uh,